you've got your Bibles, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be preaching today on Matthew 5, verses 17 through 26. So I will read that text out loud, and then I'll lead us in prayer once more. And today I'm going to be preaching out of the ESV translation, just so you know. All right, Matthew 5, 17 through 26. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and, re- and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we come before you and we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that in speaking that you have initiated with us, that you are not a God who is distant with arms folded, waiting for us to get our act together so that we can approach you. Rather, you have come and initiated relationship with us through your word. And God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word, that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. We pray that you would give us hearts that receive your love. God, where our hearts have grown hard, would you melt it away with your love? Would you increase our capacity to receive your love, Lord, so that we might return that in loving you and loving others around us? God, we pray today, ultimately, that we wouldn't have just an encounter with a religion or even with a sermon, but that we would have an encounter with the living God who knows us and who loves us and who is in this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you want to get to know someone, you don't ask for their data or their info. You learn their story. Can you imagine if you went out on a first date with someone and you sit down at the table, you look across into their eyes and then they look at you and say, so what is your social security number? (laughs) And what about your driver's license number? How tall are you exactly? Like that would be strange, right? Or could you imagine this? If, If I bumped into you in the hallway just right after our gathering today and you wanted to get to know me. And so you said, oh, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, you know, I, I grew up in Alaska and I lived there in a small town until I was 12. And then, then my family moved to Seattle after that. And, but what if then you cut me off and said, no, 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 I don't, I don't care about that. I just want to know about you. Like, well, uh, okay, like I, my wife and I have been married for 11 years. We have four daughters. Like, no, 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 I don't, like, I don't care about that stuff. Just tell me about you. That that wouldn't make sense, right? Because to get to know someone, you have to learn their story. Well, Jesus is a man with a story. And his story isn't just the early days of his life. It's the Old Testament in its entirety. The Old Testament, that portion of our Bibles that makes up about two-thirds of its content. That's the story of Jesus, and that helps us understand him and know him. But oftentimes, I think in our culture, people like Jesus. They might love Jesus. He's compelling. They're attracted to the way of Jesus. But oftentimes, people don't feel that same attraction and love for the Old Testament. 
And so what happens a lot of the time is that we think something like this. Jesus replaces the Old Testament. We think Jesus relaxes the commands of God and that righteousness, therefore, isn't as important anymore. Well, this is exactly what Jesus addresses in the passage that we're looking at today in the Sermon on the Mount. And you've seen him come and proclaim the kingdom of God. And this is good news. It's not good advice. It's an announcement that God's sovereign grace has broken in to a world that's been shattered by our own sin. It's, it's good news. And this good news declares an identity over us. And it's an identity that is not achieved. It's received from God. That you are salt and light. God declares that over us. And so now we come to this point in the passage where Jesus clarifies how his teaching, how his, his life, how his preaching of the kingdom of God and the ethics of that, of life under the reign of God in the Sermon on the Mount, how that relates to the Old Testament. And what we're going to learn through this is not only how to understand the Sermon on the Mount, but how that shapes how we live our own lives. So how does Jesus relate to the Old Testament? Well, first, we see this in this passage. Jesus does not replace the story of the Old Testament. He fulfills it. Look at the very first verse, verse 17 in this passage. Jesus is explicit. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he says the law there, he's talking about the Torah. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And we know that because he puts it with the prophets. So the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets there refers really to the rest of the Old Testament, the, the interpretation of the Torah. And so when he says this, he's saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament. But ironically, this is exactly what a lot of people think. We, we think that in the Old Testament, God was different, right? Like God was kind of in a bad mood. He was grumpy, lashed out a lot, super strict, like type A personality. Like, you know, uh, he, he was just in a bad mood. Maybe he needed to grow up a little bit. It was like his early years where he was struggling. You know, the Old Testament might be like the beta version of what God's trying to do in the earth. But then... People think you turn to the New Testament and God woke up on the other side of the cloud. He's in a better mood. He decides to get gracious and start forgiving people. He's more kind, all of that. And, and you end up with two very different understandings of God. In the early church, there was a man named Marcion who taught this explicitly, that there are two different gods, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. The Old Testament God was angry and all he cared about was justice. And then the New Testament God is loving and kind. And so he said, as Christians, we don't need the Old Testament. We can just have the New Testament. And unfortunately, there are a lot of modern day Marcionites, people who have done the same thing in only reading or only valuing the New Testament. But the problem is, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish that. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say again explicitly, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Old Testament is this grand narrative, and Jesus is the hero. He's the climax of the story. He's the fulfillment of every hope and dream and longing. We're talking about the Christ. You know, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It might be easy to think that because it's, you know, we refer to him as Jesus Christ. But it's not like he had Christ on the back of his football jersey. Or it's not that people called him Mr. Christ. It wasn't his last name. They didn't even have last names back then. It was a title. It's a title that literally means the anointed one or the Messiah. Jesus is not a generic savior. He's the promised king of Israel who would fulfill every promise made to God's people. He would be the yes to their longings and to the very things that God had claimed and said that he would do for them. And we see this in, not only in this passage here, Jesus repeatedly clarifies this throughout his ministry. He lives, he dies, he rises from the grave. And then you have the story in Luke 24 of where Jesus rises from the grave and he's walking. He's on the road 
to Emmaus. And there's two of his disciples that he walks up alongside of and, and he walks up to them and they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And they're hanging their heads, they're bummed out. They think that their king has lost they think it's over, game over. Our Messiah died on the cross. We thought he was gonna be the savior. We guess not. And Jesus walks up alongside of them and he starts talking to them. And it says they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, could you not, can, can you not see what's happening? He, he starts reminding them of this was the plan all along and they still don't recognize him. And it says in Luke 24, verse 44 through 46, it says, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Isn't this beautiful? They, they, they think that it's over. They don't recognize Jesus. And he comes along and he says, this has been the plan all along. And the whole Old Testament has been testifying to me leading up to this time. What's incredible about this story is think about what Jesus didn't do. This is the risen, reigning, resurrected Lord Jesus. And he could have gone to them and when they didn't recognize me, he could have said, guys, look, it's me, right? Like light could have radiated and filled the entire earth from the glory of the resurrected Christ. And think about what he didn't do. He didn't say, look at me. What did he do? He pointed them to the scriptures. He walked them through the Old Testament saying, look, this is who the Messiah is. This is who I am. Jesus came to fulfill this story. And that very much changes the way that we understand the Old Testament and the way that we read it. Because oftentimes what happens is that people moralize the stories of the Old Testament. You just read it, you find a moral lesson out of it, and, and these, these people in the Old Testament become basically role models that we try to imitate. And so it's, it's really be like David, be like Moses, be like Abraham, be like Ruth, be like Naomi, be like Boaz, whoever it is. It's look at how good they were. You're not that. You need to try harder to be more moral like them. But we know that the Bible is not a story of role models to imitate. It's a story of grace that we get swept into by faith. Abraham brought blessings to many people. But he's ultimately pointing forward to one greater than himself who would be, bring the blessings of God's reign to the ends of the earth, and that's Jesus. Moses was a man whom God used to bring redemption, to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and on their way to the promised land. But Moses may have been a great leader, but he's ultimately pointing forward to one greater than himself, Jesus, who would redeem us from the slavery of sin. Joshua was a great man who led God's people into the promised land. But Joshua is pointing forward beyond himself to one greater than him who would lead all of God's people, not just into the promised land, but into the new creation. That's Jesus. David was a great king who reigned over Israel but he's ultimately pointing forward to one greater than himself, Jesus, who would reign from David's throne over all of the earth. Nehemiah left his palace and went into exile to bring restoration to the people of God. But Nehemiah was a great leader, but he's pointing forward beyond himself to one greater than himself, and that's Jesus, who, like Nehemiah, left his palace and went into exile that he might bring us home to God. All of the Old Testament, all of these stories, all of these figures are pointing us forward to Jesus. That's exactly why Ephesians 1 says God had a plan for the fullness of time. And that plan was to sum up everything in Jesus. To bring everything together in unity in Christ as the head over all of it. And what that means is that Jesus is not plan B. God didn't try things one way in the Old Testament. It didn't quite work out the way that he thought. 
And so it was like, you know, okay, like I'm not really doing the job. Like the Holy Spirit's not, you know, not doing well. Like God's a manager on a baseball team who's like calling the pitcher out and bringing in the reliever. Like Jesus, go finish it up, right? Like that's not what's happening at all. No, the plan from eternity past has been that God would bring all things together in Christ. And so what this means is that the Old Testament and the Bible in its entirety is ultimately the book is a book, it's a book that's about Jesus and not primarily a book that's about you or me or us. We usually read the Bible as if it were. We open up our Bibles and say, what can I draw out of this for me today? What kind of practical principle will help me be the best version of myself today? And we treat the Bible as if it's a book about us. And so when we do that, we have to recognize that we come to Jesus not as Lord, but we come to him more like a servant who exists for our needs. We start treating Jesus like a puppet more than a king. I pull the strings. I tell you what to do rather than saying, here I am, your servant. What can I do for you? We start reading the Bible like it's a fortune cookie. Like you got to crack it. You got to get in there and dig through all the kind of boring parts to find some nugget, some principle that's going to make me feel good today. But the Bible is not a fortune cookie. It's a story of redemption. And in this grand narrative, the greatest story ever told in the history of the world, we're not the hero. Jesus is. Now, don't mishear me on this. The Bible applies to us. And it's certainly for us. And in fact, it can absolutely transform us. But only when you see how it does so in shining a spotlight on Jesus. So I want you to see that you can't understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament. That that's his story. And if you try to, then what you will do is you will make Jesus into your image. And people love to do this with Jesus. I'm all about Jesus, but it's the Jesus that I conform into the way I want him to be. So if you're a Democrat, Jesus starts looking a lot like a Democrat. If you're a Republican, Jesus starts looking a lot like a Republican. If you're, if you like even personality traits, if, if, if you're like outgoing and gregarious and you're like Jesus, like he was at the parties, right? Like that's what he was like. If you're like quiet and reserved, you're like Jesus, meek and mild, right? <laughs> like we start making Jesus out to be who we want to be, who we want him to be the minute that we separate him from the very story that he reveals himself um, within. The early church father Augustine put it well when he said this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. And so often we do that, where we want to take a little bit of this, piece together that, but when we do so, we're acting as if we are the author who writes God into our story as we want. But God is the author who has written us into his story. And it's a story that has Jesus as its hero. So Jesus doesn't replace the Old Testament. He doesn't nullify it or supersede it. Jesus fulfills it. The next thing we learn in this passage comes from verse 19. And we learn this. Jesus does not relax the commands of God. He upholds them. Look what he says in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, we shift here from the story of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, to the commandments of God which are often referred to as laws in the Bible as well, but it's being used in a bit more narrow sense here. See, the law is what God commands. Grace is what God gives. They're both very important, but we need to recognize the distinction between those. And we have to understand the law. Here's why. The way you understand the law will either lead to rule-keeping religion or grace-driven holiness. 
And that all hinges on how you understand the law. See, a lot of people think of Christianity as rule-keeping religion. I very much thought of Christianity this way, growing up and being around the church. I remember my mom talking about her own upbringing in the church and all the rules that they had to keep. And I remember her saying that, you know, their phrase that they would use all the time was, don't smoke or chew or go with boys who do, right? Like, just keep the rules, do this, don't do that. And I very much thought of the faith in that way. There's a list of things, most of which that you can't do, some of which that you can, and the goal is to keep those rules, and if you do, God will reward you. It's rule-keeping religion. I think this often comes from a wrong view of God, that we think of God like a cosmic killjoy, like God is trying to make your life difficult and giving you rules that are meant to just make things hard to test how much you really care. He's, try, he's playing a game with you. He's trying to make things hard to see if you will really sacrifice and suffer enough to prove that you love him. And we think of God as, as if like pleasure were the devil's idea. Like God just wants cold obedience, and if you enjoy it, he's going to get upset with that. But this is a, a, not just a wrong view of who God is, it's, it's the opposite. That when we open the Bible, we see a God who is not only joyful and loving within himself, but a God who delights in giving his people joy. Pleasure is God's idea, not the devil's. <laughs> Sex was God's idea. It's not like God created Adam and Eve and then after a while looked down and was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, no, stop that. Like, no, sex is God's idea. He's that kind of God. Taste buds are God's idea. Like, God didn't just create you to be a machine that needs to be fueled. He created you to want to enjoy that experience, to be able to eat slowly and, and enjoy the different types of food and combinations of food and the conversations that come with that. He's that kind of God. God loves us, and he is for our joy. I think in the opening chapters of Scripture, in the story in Eden, People always focus on God telling them, don't eat from that one tree. But we forget the line before that where God places them in a luscious garden and says, you can eat from all these trees. Just go and enjoy it. And then he says, but don't eat from that one. And we focus so much on the prohibition of one tree that we forget the invitation to all the other trees. He's the God of delight, of joy, who is for us and who is for our good and wants us to, th to, to flourish and thrive. And so I think it comes down to understanding this key principle. God's commands are not prohibitions on fun. They are boundaries for freedom. They're boundaries for freedom. Again, God wants you to, to flourish, to thrive, to run in, the, in freedom. But he knows what's good for us. He knows what will help and what will hurt. And so he gives us boundaries for our good to protect us so that we can thrive within those. Let me explain it to you like this. Uh, let's take the game of basketball. Okay, this is a good basketball city. Champions, right? Okay. <laughs> The game of basketball has rules. There are laws in the game of basketball. And there are literal boundaries, right? Like you go to a basketball court and, and there are lines on the court that if you go out of bounds, then it's the other team's ball, right? Now, the rules in basketball, like those boundary markers or rules like you can't run without dribbling or when you dribble, you have to dribble with one hand at a time or you can't hit someone's arm when they're shooting, that's a foul. All of these rules aren't meant to restrict the players and to make it difficult and hard. They're boundaries for freedom. So when Stephen Curry dribbles past half court, crosses someone over, spin move, step back, and hits a 30-foot three and is running the other way before the ball goes in the hoop, he's flourishing within the boundaries of freedom, right? He's not saying, why are these restrictions of all these rules and all these things that we have to do, right? 
No, those rules actually create freedom. If we just said no more rules, we're just like, we just want to be like out of the box and just be super creative and everyone do what you want. It would be chaos, right? It would be violence. It, it would not be freedom at all. So it's the right boundaries that give freedom. And in God giving us commands, it's for our good. His commands are good. And so Jesus does not relax or dismiss the law. He fulfills it. He fulfills it. And we often think that when Christ came, that it was like God finally let up on the law. Like God was being super strict. Here's the standard. You've got to keep this. And after like thousands of years of the people God failing, he's like, fine, fine. You people are so pathetic. I will lower my standards now and I'll start, I'll start working by grace, right? That's kind of how we often think of it. But grace does not mean that God lets up on the law. It means that he fulfills it for us by sending his own son. And when Jesus lived... When he walked the earth, he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law and its fullness. And when I talk about the law as the commands of God, the Ten Commandments are really a summary of that. And Jesus summarizes that as love God and love your neighbor. That's, that's the law. That's, that's the summary of God's commands to us. And when Jesus lived... He lived a perfect life. Everything that he did reflected love towards the Father and love towards those around him. That's why he never stole. That's why he never envied. That's why he never used the Lord's name in vain because he loved his Father and he loved those around him. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, he bears the curse that comes from us breaking the law. And and many of you, probably most of you, if you've been around church long, you've heard that before, that Jesus dies for our sins, that he bears the curse of our sin through his death on the cross. And that, that's true and glorious, and we're going to come back to that. But I also want you to see that he fulfills the law with his perfectly righteous life, that he keeps the covenant with God. And so it's when we look to Christ that we see this shift from rule-keeping religion to grace-driven holiness. And this understanding of grace-driven holiness, it doesn't do away with the law, but we're putting it in its place. The law was never meant to determine our standing with God. The law is not the way that we achieve approval from God. But the law does play an important role. The law is not the power of the Christian life, but it does show us the shape and the contour of the Christian life. Let me explain this by way of analogy. The, the law is like train tracks that show you the right direction to go. And that direction of how God wired us, of how God made us, of when we will experiencing flourishing as humans is when we love God and we love those around us. Again, that's the positive aspect of the law. Love God and love one another. And when you do that, when you love your neighbor, you don't kill your neighbor, <laughs> right? When you love your neighbor, you don't steal from your neighbor. When, when you love God, you use his name in praise, not for curse words. So, the, the law is like the train tracks that show us the direction of how God wired us to live. But the law itself can't move us down the tracks. Only the grace of God can do that. Only God's grace getting to the heart and changing us from within is the power, is the engine that moves us forward down the tracks. And those tracks on both sides, they act like rails that are going to correct us when we start going off. So when I start um, envying uh, um, others, which by the way is a sin. <laughs> like that's one of the great things about the law. It tells us things that are sins that we didn't even know. Like, oh, I just thought that's what drove our economy. Envy, right? Like <laughs> wanting things I don't have. 
But the Ten Commandments tells us that that's a sin. Because in wanting the things that we don't have, we are, we are minimizing or, or having a lack of gratitude for the things that we do have. And so when we start feeling that veering off, the law, that track, is going to remind us, oh wait, I'm envying right now. Why is that? There's something off in my relationship with the Lord where I feel like I'm defined by lack, whereas I know that as a child of God, I'm defined by abundance. And so when I, when, when I feel envy, then the, the, the guardrail lets me know of that, but the rail itself doesn't have the power to move me down. I got to keep going back to the love of God for that. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, put it well when he said this, the law commands and makes us know what duties to our God we owe, but tis the gospel must reveal where lies our strength to do his will. Here's how I think this plays out for us, practically speaking. Um, we have to avoid two dangers in the Christian life. One of those is lawlessness, and the other one is legalism. See, the lawlessness side says, well, Jesus came in grace, so I'm forgiven. Sweet, I can do whatever I want, right? Like, God forgives sin. I'm good at sinning. This is a match made in heaven. Like, <laughs> glory to God, right? And, and like, we think that because Jesus has come in grace that I, I don't need to, uh, righteousness doesn't matter. The commands of God, those are out. Like, it's, it's all grace. But on the other side of it, it's, no, Jesus came to fulfill the law, so you better keep the law. You better do that. The Bible says this, you're doing that. Get, get it right. And we often experience a back and forth of those two very things of lawlessness and legalism. But a right understanding of the grace of God gives us a whole different way of thinking. Grace is not permission to sin. It's the power to overcome sin. And when the grace of God transforms our hearts, it changes us and empowers us to live lives that then start aligning with the law. Where we're loving God. We're loving one another. We're living not for self, but for the good of those around us. And so it's that understanding of grace a true understanding of grace that's going to empower us and move us further and further in righteousness. And so we've seen that Jesus does not replace the story of the Old Testament. He fulfills it. Jesus does not relax the commands of God. He upholds them. And then third, Jesus does not minimize righteousness. He brings a greater righteousness. Look at verse 20 where he says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is an incredible statement by Jesus. I mean, when his disciples would have heard this, they would have been shocked. What? You have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees to enter into the kingdom of God? These were like the super righteous religious people. These are the ones who are known for their righteousness. I mean, let me just give you a little bit of an idea of what the scribes and the Pharisees were like in their pursuit of righteousness. They would memorize the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Memorize the whole thing. Like, I feel like I want to congratulate someone if they read through it, right? Like, Leviticus is difficult. Can you imagine memorizing Leviticus? Can you imagine memorizing the book of Numbers? I mean, parts of it read like a Hebrew phone book. And they would memorize the whole thing. They were strict in their pursuit of righteousness. They, we, we learn later on that some of them would literally tithe from their spice rack. I mean, look, like, I'm praising God if people tithe at all, but none of you brought your salt and pepper to church today, right? Like, 10 or 9 pieces of salt for me, one for the church. Like, they're, they're getting everything in their life and, and giving 10% of it in that way. So the scribes and the Pharisees were extremely strict in their pursuit of righteousness. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is showing us here 
that he's not just talking about the next level of righteousness. He's talking about a different kind of righteousness altogether. For the Pharisees, righteousness was really about external obedience through behavior modification. The whole focus was on what are you doing and what are you not doing? Are you keeping the rules? And they had a lot of them. Not just rules from the Bible. They started adding on to that. Are you keeping the rules? And if you're not, then start keeping them. It's just behavior modification. You're not doing this. The the rules say this. Start doing it. And, And so they're driven by this willpower in the midst of that. But for Jesus, righteousness is something very different from that. For Jesus, righteousness is not behavior modification. It's inside-out transformation. It's the grace of God getting into the heart and bringing change at a heart level that then plays out in every aspect of life. And when we talk about the heart, it's important that we understand this from a biblical perspective because when we use the word heart in the English language in our culture, we usually just think of emotions or feelings but in the, in the Bible, the heart was the control seat, not only for your emotions, but for your intellect and for your will as well. The heart is really the control room for your whole life. So if Jesus gets your heart, he's got all of you. It's the steering wheel of wherever your heart goes. That's where your money's going to go. That's where your passion's going to go. That's where your gifts are going to go. And so this type of righteousness that Jesus is talking about, it's a righteousness that comes from a heart that's changed by grace. I want to remind you, God doesn't want cold obedience from you apart from knowing you. God doesn't want you to keep the rules, to keep him happy without seeing your heart explode and overflowed, overflow with his love. God's not just out for your obedience for the sake of obedience. He wants to know you. He wants your heart. And he knows that when you truly love God and receive love from God, that that's going to transform every aspect of your life. Jesus uses two analogies as he goes on in his teaching throughout the book of Matthew to talk about this type of change and this type of righteousness. One is in Matthew 7, he says that every healthy tree bears good fruit. So the point here is not just look at the fruit, it's that if a tree is healthy, it bears fruit. But because we can't see the health of the tree, it's on the inside, usually all we look at is, is, is the fruit, right? And so we look at our own lives and what we see is the external. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably spend a lot more time on our external appearance than we do on our internal health. And so what we do is we know there are certain things that we should do. We know that there are certain fruits of the Christian life. I should be humble. I should be patient. I should be more kind. But what we often do is is we just try and attach those things on from the outside. Be more humble. Be more patient. That's what Christians do. You should be more kind. That's what good Christians do. God's going to be upset if you don't. But that's like going to a tree that doesn't have fruit and and trying to like staple it on. Like, Like going to the grocery store, buying some fruit, and taking it to a tree that doesn't have any and trying to staple it onto the leaves. No. The way you produce that is by producing health within the tree. A tree planted by streams of water bears its fruit in its season because those those roots are nourished. It's healthy internally and then it produces fruit. That's the type of change that Jesus wants to bring about. That's the type of righteousness that he wants to exhibit as we live under the reign of God. Another metaphor that Jesus uses to talk about this type of change is in Matthew 23, he confronts the Pharisees and he says, woe to you who merely clean the outside of the cup to make it look clean on the outside. It's as if they're just, they're scrubbing the outside, but on the inside of this cup, it's disgusting. It's like that coffee cup that you leave out and you forget to clean. And then there's like mildew growing in it after a while, but it's sparkly on the outside. 
Jesus says to them, first clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will be clean as well. It's almost like, it's almost like um, a glass, a clear glass that's dirty on the inside. And that's like our, our lives. And we spend all of our time trying to polish the outside, but no matter how hard we work, it's dirty on the inside. It's only when the inside is clean that then the outside appears clean as well. And so it's God's love, God's grace coming in and purifying us within that creates this, this righteousness in our lives. When I get lazy, when I'm doing the dishes, sometimes I just put a cup in there and I turn the hot water on and I just let it run and overflow until it just gradually brings everything out of it. Now, it's not the best use of water nor electricity, but the heat. But uh, that's how God changes us. God pours in his love into our hearts and it pushes out the impurities. It pushes out the sin in our own hearts and it brings about change. This is the kind of righteousness that Jesus is calling them to and that Jesus calls us to. And then Jesus goes on from this, having explained this very important principle of how what he's doing here relates to the law, that he's not relaxing the law, he's fulfilling it and changing us from within so that we can live in accordance with it. He explains that, but then he applies it very practically to a situation that, that both involves our emotions and our relationships. And so he says in verse 21 and 22 then, he applies it to anger. And he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So think about it. Jesus isn't abolishing the law here. He doesn't say, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say murder, <laughs> right? Like he doesn't do that. He's not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling it. He says, You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, if you get angry with a person, then that's a problem too. So Jesus is, is showing more of the depths of the law here, that it's not just your external behavior, it's your heart that matters. Our behavior is like the check engine light of our hearts. You know, when the check engine light comes on in your car, it's not like something is wrong with the light. <laughs> Like, if you just, like, smash that light or, like, pull the wire out or something like that, you didn't fix the problem. You're just ignoring it. Our behavior is like the check engine light. That it's, it's, it's not the root problem. It's, it's, it's telling us what is the root problem. Something is wrong with our heart. And when you want to attack someone physically, it's because something started happening in your heart that was so sinful, so wicked, and that hasn't been dealt with in the right way, that what's going on internally is then going to express itself physically in that way. And we all need to, we all deal with this. We all deal with anger. Whether that's in some of you who might lash out and have a real lack of self-control in that sense, or some of us who might be more just passive-aggressive and manipulative in the way that we express anger but we all deal with anger. And the question is, do we deal with it in a healthy way? Because anger that's not dealt with in a healthy way will eventually become bitterness. And it's been said, bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It doesn't do any good. It just burns within. And so we have to learn to deal with this anger at a heart level, not just at an external level of, of don't do this anymore or change that habit. Those things are very important too. But we have to also deal with it at a heart level. If it's a righteous anger, we have to learn to express itself in seeking justice, not vengeance. If it's an unrighteous anger, we have to say, where does this come from? Why am I so angry? One example is that oftentimes anger comes when we lack control or when we lose control. And yet when we deal with that at a heart level, we might ask the question, why am I so upset that I don't have control? That I'm not getting things my way? 
Because the grace of God comes into our heart and changes us, and we recognize that we don't have control, and that's actually a good thing. And that frees us to love people. So we need to deal with that at a heart level. You see how that overflows then, not just in our emotions, but in relationships. In verse 23, he goes on and says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You get the situation, right? You've got a problem with someone else. They've got a problem with you. It's unresolved. You feel that tension. You feel that awkwardness. You've gone through in your mind over and over and over again the things that you would say to them if you ran into them in the hallway. Like you've written the email in your mind where you like tell them off and justify yourself. And there's that unresolved relationship. And you feel it. And then it's the time where you're in a church service. And you're you're bringing your offering to the Lord. You're singing to the Lord. You're giving financially. You're going and receiving communion. You're praying. You're doing these things. And Jesus says to him, in that moment, he says, stop playing the game. Just stop playing the game. Because when it comes to that point, we're just going through the motions, doing what we should be doing, but ignoring the very heart of it. When the grace of God grips your heart, it reconciles you to God. It teaches you how to love one another. And it calls us to a way of living that is righteous, that has integrity in all that we do. And it's calling us to not just do those actions that we should do, even when we're not there, when when we're ignoring something else. And I want you to notice here when, what he says here is he doesn't say, he doesn't just say, forget about your offering to the Lord and go get right with that person. He says, no, first go and get right with that person and then bring your offering to the Lord. He's, he's reminding us what's primary is getting right with God. But to do that in a way that's authentic and genuine, we've got to be honest about what's going on internally and in our emotions like anger We've got to be honest about what's going on in our relationships and not pretend because we might fake out other people, but we won't do that with God. And so I want to to close by coming back to that of getting right with God because that's what puts everything else in perspective. It's in wanting to seek the Lord that we start feeling conviction of, oh, but it doesn't feel right to do that because I haven't. Made what's, I haven't made it right with this person. Or I've got this unrighteous anger within me that I haven't dealt with in a healthy way. And so it's seeking the Lord that then brings everything into focus. And I know that for many of you that the Holy Spirit, as this word is going forth, is, is bringing things to mind, is exposing things in your heart. And God does not expose our sin to shame us, but to bring healing to it. And some of you have just been doing rule-keeping religion. You've just been trying to keep the rules and make other people think that you're good at it. Some of you have just been playing the game, that you're singing the songs, you're saying the prayers, maybe you're even giving money, but you're not right with God. You're not living from a place of genuine change in your heart. Some of you are attracted to the way of Christ, but you don't know the person of Christ. And so the invitation isn't just to a lifestyle or a way of living. It's, the invitation is to Jesus. And Jesus shows us the heart of righteousness. And that's a heart transformed by the gospel. See, it's a changed heart that produces a changed life. But the only thing that can get in that deep and bring about that type of change is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so it's no surprise that this teaching on a mountain in Galilee would ultimately lead to an act of salvation on a mountain called Golgotha. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom throughout his life, but he also embodied it. And we see through his healings that he reigns with power. 
We see in his teachings that he reigns with wisdom, but it's at the cross where we see that he reigns with love. And Jesus went to the cross that he might take our sin upon himself, that he would die in our place for our sins, that we would be forgiven, reconciled with God. But not only would we be forgiven of our sins, that we would be made righteous. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the cross and the resurrection of Christ, our sin is taken and we receive the righteousness of God. And then we live into that righteousness in following Christ our King. I think the Apostle Paul summarized what it looks like well to receive this teaching in the book of Philippians in chapter 3. Paul was someone who had built his early life on his own works, on his own righteousness, on building his spiritual resume before God. And yet he had an encounter with the risen Lord. And after that, he could say, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. It's a response of faith to this good news that makes us righteous, that makes us know God in such a way where we, be, we are being transformed by his love and his love is coming not only to us, but then through us to those around us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your love and your mercy, for the way that you have pursued us and overcome our sinful resistance with your grace. God, I pray that in this place right now, Lord, that your love would soften our hearts that you would open our hearts, maybe even where there are wounds, God, that you would open those that we might experience healing through your love. God, we pray that in encountering Christ, that we would be a people who are made righteous and who live out of that place of righteousness. That we would be a people who are a part of a story bigger than ourselves who recognize that we have a God who delights in, in giving us mercy and who trusts in your commands and that we would be a people who as we follow Christ, live for his glory and live as a part of the work that he's doing. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.